My dear brethren and sisters, young people, you may recall that at our last class we found where the life of David's persecution began. When he was forced to flee from his own home, when Saul sent men to take him and to kill him, and with the help of his wife, Michal, he managed to escape and he went directly to Samuel the prophet, to the school of the prophets. But primarily he went to the presence of Samuel. And from that we learnt the very important and the very powerful lesson. But David, when forced to flee, did not simply go off in a panic, but realised that it was important that he go to the man who was most important to him in his life. And that was because Samuel was the spiritual voice of Israel at this time. And so that is where he went. We then found, of course, that he ultimately was forced to flee from the presence of Samuel in Ramah. And all of that, of course, illustrates the fact that David's life of persecution had now begun and he simply had to bear with that and uh, he simply had to carry on remaining faithful to the things that he knew was right and leaving his life and his future cause in the hands of Yahweh. And so in chapter 20 and verse 1, and we did get as far as verse 11 in our last class, remember we learned there that David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? We also saw that the word Naoth does not refer to a place. There's no known place anywhere in the land of Israel by the name of Naoth, but rather the word should be translated out. The word means huts. We saw that also back in uh, the end of verse 18 where it says that he came to Samuel, and at the end of verse 18, he and Samuel went and dwelt in Naoth. Now they didn't dwell in a place called Naoth, they dwelt in huts. So there was a special community of people there in Ramah, which was Samuel's hometown, and uh, so it was from this place that ultimately David was caused to flee. So we then ask ourselves the question, well where does he go now? And once again we find that David does not just simply set off in a panic, running wildly in any direction, hoping for safety somewhere, somehow. Again he goes to one of the most important people in his life, and that was, of course, to Jonathan. And he tried to persuade Jonathan what Saul's attitude was toward him, and that if he remained there in the presence of Saul, he would undoubtedly die. And Jonathan, as you'll recall, found it very difficult to come to grips with this. He said in verse 2 of chapter 20 that my father won't do anything without consulting me about it first. He didn't realise how wrong he was. So while he was loyal to David, he was also loyal to his father as well. But David made his point to Jonathan at the end of verse 3 when he pointed out to him there is but a step between me and death. And we spent a little time dwelling upon that statement. There is but a step between me and death. And we saw how that although that applied to the very dangerous situation in which David now found himself, we saw also that it's a phrase that applies to every one of us. And day by day we never know when our life is going to end. None of us knows how much time we have. Not only until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but in our own lifetime. We just simply do not know whether we are young or whether we are old. We've got no idea. So that each day we have to learn to live according to that principle. But there is but a step between us and death. And therefore to have our minds centred upon the coming of Christ, upon the kingdom of God, and upon, above all else, service and wholehearted commitment to the God whom we claim to serve. And so ultimately at the end of this discourse we found in verse 11 that Jonathan said unto David, Come and let us go out into the field. And they went out, both of them, into the field. We mentioned last, at the last class that that appears to be just a casual little verse inserted there. But we also pointed out what a wonderful verse it is and how deep and profound it is in meaning. Why did they go out into the field, both of them together, as the Lord Jesus Christ did with his disciples? And we had a look at Mark chapter 6 and verses 30 to 32 and saw that the Lord did exactly that same thing with his disciples. And there is no doubt that David and Jonathan spent that time together. We don't know how much time. They spent that time together, communing with one another, fellowshipping one another in the things of the truth. They were of one mind in the things of Almighty God. 
and they would have encouraged one another. Perhaps they joined together in prayer to the Father. That is most likely that they did that. And so having done that, their discussion goes further. And in verse 12, where we take up the narrative tonight, we find that it says that Jonathan said unto David, O Yahweh Elohim of Israel, when I have sounded my father about tomorrow, any time, or the third day, and behold, if there be good toward David, and I then send not unto thee, and show it thee, Yahweh do so, and much more to Jonathan. Now that verse reads a little strangely, because it starts off by saying, by saying that Jonathan said unto David, and then immediately it says, or it appears to say, that he is then turning and addressing Yahweh in prayer. But when we look at that uh, 12th verse carefully, we'll find that it is better understood in this way. Then Jonathan said to David, Yahweh, Elohim of Israel, be witness. I will sound my father this time tomorrow. Now that is how the Hebrew is translated into English. And so therefore there's no confusion at all. Jonathan said to David, Yahweh, Elohim of Israel, be witness. So instead of calling upon Yahweh or addressing him, he is actually calling upon Yahweh to be witness to what he is now about to resolve and the undertaking that he is to give to his wonderful friend David. Jonathan said to David, Yahweh, Elohim of Israel, be witness. I will sound my father this time tomorrow. And rather imagine his translation, tomorrow or the third day. So it appears that Jonathan is saying, any, give me any time up to three days. You want to be away for three days. You want to absent yourself to Bethlehem for three days. Very well. During that time, I will examine the situation. I will get the true feeling of my father during that time and I will let you know. So he says in verse 13, I will show it thee and send thee away. And this is a very touching and a very moving point in the, uh, the association between these two men, as we shall see as the narrative develops throughout this chapter. It's a very, very moving and a very tender and a very touching section of the Word of God, brought about because of the very intimate relationship between these two men. Their intimate relationship based upon their oneness of mind, their unity and the faith, their mutual reverence for Yahweh and the word of Yahweh and for doing that which is right and according to the will and the wisdom of Almighty God, which is what they turn to for guidance and direction. So from verse 13 we learn that Jonathan solemnly undertakes to preserve David's life no matter what. He'll let him know if things are favourable, but if things are not favourable, he will still make sure that he knows. So in other words, he would show no undivided loyalty toward David. He was, not going to be, he was not going to be swayed by the situation as to whether he remained loyal to David or whether he didn't. He is not suggesting for one moment that he will betray his father, which he never at any time did. Although we'll see later in this chapter, God willing, where uh, he certainly has a, uh, a very strong disagreement with his father over the future of David. Nevertheless, he, he guarantees to show his loyalty to David. And so he says, Yahweh be with thee as he hath been with my father. You know, it's one of the saddest utterings that Jonathan ever made. The Jerusalem Bible renders it, And may Yahweh be with you as he used to be with my father. That's very sad and very tragic. Because you see, Jonathan could realise that Yahweh had withdrawn himself from Saul as we saw back in that 15th chapter. Jonathan realised that. His father couldn't see it. His father couldn't realise, couldn't appreciate the position in which he had placed himself before God. But this is what Jonathan says, May Yahweh be with you as he used to be with my father. And is that not a statement of pathos and tragedy? And yet for all of that, we find that Jonathan is very, very sad about this, but he is not bitter. And we need to always remember that about Jonathan's character. He knew of the divergence between Saul and, and David. He knew of the great gulf between these two. But although it saddened him, although now, no doubt he lost many, many nights of sleep and spent many hours in prayer over this matter, 
Yet though he was saddened by the situation, he was never ever bitter. And Jonathan realised only too well that Yahweh had withdrawn his support of Saul. And therefore, Saul had only the flesh to rest upon. As we saw back in chapter 15 and verse 28. But you see, these words here in verse 13 indicate something else. They indicate to us Jonathan's very fierce desire that David might be preserved by Yahweh and blessed by Yahweh to inherit the kingdom. You see, Jonathan is not only aware that Yahweh has withdrawn his power and his support from Saul, but he also knows, as we've seen in the course of our studies, that David is to be the next king. And Jonathan, as we have seen, has resigned to David direct any right that he might have had to the throne and given it all to David. And he has said, Thou shalt be the first in the kingdom and I shall be next unto thee. And so Jonathan realises that. And now he exhibits a fierce desire to see that David might survive to inherit that kingdom. And had Jonathan not been a man of the truth or a man of the spirit, he would never have acted in that way. He would have thought, well, this is my opportunity to get rid of one who is, uh, um, one who is going to compete with me for the throne. But Jonathan simply wanted to do that was absolutely right. So then in verse 14 he says, but there's something that we must once again get exactly right between ourselves, between Jonathan and David. And he says, thou shalt not only while yet I live, show me the kindness of Yahweh that I die not, but also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when Yahweh hath cut off the enemies of David, every one from the face of the earth. And of course one of those enemies was Saul. One of those enemies was Saul. So having stated his intention of doing everything within his power according to the will of Yahweh to preserve David's life, he now asks that David will do the same for Jonathan and also for his family. You see something there, it's almost as though there's a premonition there on the part of Jonathan, doesn't it? Jonathan foresaw the demise of Saul and David's elevation to the throne. He doesn't know at this time exactly what Yahweh has in store for him or what might happen after David becomes king. But he hopes that their close and intimate friendship will always continue. And so in that 15th verse he expresses that to David. Words that are indicative not only of Jonathan's absolute faith in the hope that Yahweh would give the kingdom to David, but they also seem again in those words in verse 15 to imply a premonition on the part of Jonathan that he himself might see or meet a premature death. That in all the turmoil that was going on in Israel at that time and all the things that were to develop, he didn't know how long David had to suffer persecution at the hands of his father. He had no idea, and no more idea than David did. But he knew that it had to be endured. And is it not a true saying that that which cannot be cured must be endured? And doesn't that happen in the case of trial in the truth? When very often under severe trial we pray to our Heavenly Father and we ask Him for that trial to be lifted. And if we are wise, we will pray that the trial may be lifted if it be according to His will. Because that's what is important. He has the wisdom to know what is best for us. And so whenever we pray that a trial might be lifted from us, we need always remember to pray that that may be so, but only if it be the Father's will. And leave the rest entirely up to Him. Not thinking merely of ourselves, but rather His purpose in us. And it seems as though Jonathan had uppermost in his mind the future welfare of his own family. Just like a loving parent would with any of the members, all of the members of, of his own family. Of course, here is Jonathan saying, well, if anything happens to me, will you please remember our covenant and will you please care for my family? You know, David never forgot that. 
much, much later, when we go over to the second of Samuel, keeping one hand in chapter 20, in the second of Samuel, chapter 9, and at verse 1, you'll notice here that David chose very, very clearly that he remember that. But when all the turmoil had died, and David sits enthroned as king, he says in chapter 9 and verse 1, as he asks all his men around him who would know these things, David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So, David went further than the terms of his covenant required. He not only was interested in Jonathan's family, but he would even take care of and forget any differences between any member of Saul's family as far as that was concerned. That's what he says here. Is there left to the house of Saul any that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? What a wonderful spirit is there. We know how the position's been reversed. Jonathan would have done the same thing. And so in verse 16 of the 20th chapter, we find that Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let Yahweh even require it at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear again, because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own life. So Jonathan, it says here, made a covenant with the house of David. But the Jerusalem Bible renders it more correctly, once again, Jonathan swore the solemn oath to David because he loved him as his own soul or as his own life. In other words, he repeats the covenant. He is so intent upon the covenant between these two. Not that he has any doubts about David or David's loyalty to what he has promised. But remember back in chapter 18 and verse 3 and 4, we've seen that these two had already made a covenant. This is merely a restatement of that condition under extreme trial. This is a moment of extreme trial, not only for David, but for Jonathan as well. Everything is coming to a head at this particular point. And it seems as though in the depth of their mutual despair, they want to cling to each other. And by the renewal of this covenant, it gives them strength and it gives them courage to endure the the trial when they are put to the test under these conditions. And you know, brethren and sisters, we're in no different position, really. We need to remember always that when we are under trial, the only thing for us to do is to go to our God, to renew our covenant with Him through the Lord Jesus Christ, and the trial will always be the much easier to bear if we're prepared to do that, to develop the mind of the Spirit in action, as we have seen time and again has been the case with both David and Jonathan. And so in verse 17, Jonathan caused David to swear again because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. You see how that is showing us that David and Jonathan were one. They were typical, as we have seen before, of Christ and his ecclesia. David typifies the Lord Jesus Christ. Jonathan typifies the ecclesia. They had one interest. They had one objective. And they were of one mind on the things of the truth. And therefore their mutual desire was that they might bring glory to the name of Yahweh. Now that's exactly what it is in the same situation with Christ and his ecclesia. You see, in effect, Jonathan never lived to see a ripe age. He did not live to see David enthroned in fulfilment of the promise that Yahweh had made. He did not live to see the whole nation of Israel settled in peace and well-being under the wise leadership of his friend David. He didn't live to see that. But you know something? Jonathan hasn't lost anything either. It's very sad, and we always feel sad when we think of, of Jonathan dying the death of a soldier defending Israel upon the Mount of Gilboa. We always feel very sad when we read that chapter, the very last chapter in the first of Samuel. 
But we must clearly understand that for all of that, Jonathan hasn't lost anything. Now let's see this, how the Lord Jesus Christ brings this out. By keeping a hand in the first of Samuel chapter 20 and turning over to Matthew 16 and verse 24 to 27. Here is the Lord spelling it out very clearly. And here is an unchanging principle from the days of Abel right down through history to our own day and right beyond until the time when the Lord returns. No one will be the loser by remaining faithful to the things of the truth. In Matthew 16, verse 24 to 27, remember the Lord saying this in verse 24, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come unto me, let him deny himself and take up his stake and follow me. That's exactly what Jonathan had done. He had denied himself. The word literally means to renounce yourself. Renounce self. Once we come into covenant relationship with the God of Israel, through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are no longer our own. We belong to Christ and we belong to the Father. So therefore we renounce ourselves. If any man will come after me, let him renounce himself and take up his cross or his stake and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Now you see, that's exactly the way Jonathan's mind worked. He did not try to save his life at the expense of faithful David. He was prepared to lose his life, to lay down his life, knowing the joy that was set before him when the Messiah came to raise the faithful dead and to take them into the kingdom. And the Lord goes on in verse 26 to say, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world? What if Jonathan had gained the throne and become king over all the tribes of Israel and risen to greatness and power and authority and gone to war at the head of Israel and so forth and become a great man in the kingdom of Israel? What would that have profited Jonathan if he'd lost his hope of eternal life? And he wasn't going to do that because he knew that he had to act in accordance with the spirit of the truth and what Yahweh required. And so in doing that, he understood this principle also. What is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own life? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. So here we find Jonathan manifesting precisely this spirit because he understood precisely these terms and conditions for eternal salvation and for true service to Yahweh, the God of Israel. You know, two things had produced that spirit of self-sacrifice in Jonathan. One was love and the other was faith. Faith comes before love. We should have put them the other way around. His faith in Yahweh And his faith also in his friend Jonathan, that he would be true and loyal, that he would exhibit absolute fidelity toward the the covenant between the two. But then his love, first and foremost his love for Yahweh, and then his great love for David. Those were the two things that motivated Jonathan, faith and love. And if those things motivate us, brethren and sisters, then God willing we shall see the kingdom together with David and Jonathan. And so in verse 18, Jonathan now deals with the realities of the situation that they face. Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and thou shalt be missed because thy seat will be empty. You may recall that earlier on in this chapter, David has already declared absolutely and totally that he will not be there, that he's not going to sit down again at the table of Saul because he can't trust him. And he knows his life will be forfeit if he does that. So Jonathan points out and says, well look, you're going to be missed. David in verse 5 has said, yes, my word, I'm going to be missed. So Jonathan now acknowledges that this is perhaps a wise precaution. And so from this particular point on, we find then 
that, uh, that uh, something has to be done about this. So in verse 19 it says that when thou hast stayed three days then thou shalt go down quickly and come to the place where thou didst hide thyself when the business was in hand that was previously and shalt remain by the stone Ezel. Now we don't know where this stone Ezel was but in all probability it's not a name at all. Rotherham translates it as by the side of this mound. And the Jerusalem Bible seems to follow that as well when they render it, you must stay beside the heap of stones there. So despite what the marginal rendering says, it seems as though the word Ezel is yet another one of these words, like Naoth, that should be translated out. Because it appears to mean a mound or a heap of stones. And so it was a place known to both Jonathan and David. There was no problem in doing that. So in verse 20, Jonathan tells him what he will do. I will shoot three arrows on the side thereof, as though I shot at a mark. In other words, what we've got to understand is that Jonathan would go out into the field and they would not know whether it would be too dangerous for David to show himself at all, so David must remain hidden. Jonathan is going to go out into the field and take a young lad with him and he's going to make as though this mound is a target and he's going to be shooting arrows toward this target as though he's having some practice with a bow and arrow and by that means he's going to get a message to David he says I will shoot three arrows why would he have shot three arrows well we know only too well that seven is primarily the covenant number but number three is also a number that is again and again associated with a covenant relationship. And we haven't the time to deal with it tonight, but if at some time you get out your concordance and look up the occurrences of the word three, you'll find quite a number of places, starting with Genesis 22, verse 4, we would suggest, and you'll find that there are various places wherein the number three is very strongly related to the covenant. So, he's going to let David know exactly what the position is. Now, you'll notice here in verse 21, Behold, I will send a lad, saying, Go find out the arrows. Now, you see, the point is that if Jonathan has got someone there with him, he can speak to this lad and call out in a loud voice. And while addressing the lad, his words, of course, are really directed to David. If there was no one there but Jonathan, and Jonathan started shouting out warnings or something or other, it would not be at all surprising if Saul at this stage, particularly after what happens in a few verses' time, Saul didn't have Jonathan watched very carefully. And his footsteps may well have been dogged wherever he went, and he had to be very careful as to what he said and what he did. So Jonathan would have to shout sufficiently loud for David to hear in his hiding place. And what Jonathan points out here is that if the arrows dropped short of the mound of rocks, then David could come forth knowing that he was in no danger. But if Jonathan were to shoot the arrows beyond the mound of rocks, then David was to flee for his life. And that's how they were going to arrange to live out this great drama together. And you'll notice in verse 22, a most beautiful point is there made. But if I say thus, I am telling you, you must go for your life. Doesn't mention himself. He said, for Yahweh hath sent thee away. There's an example of Jonathan's faith. He confessed that Yahweh's guiding hand was over all that they were planning to do. But their future, both of them, lay in the hands of Yahweh and that he being all wise would know what was best and whatever the outcome was going to be whether it was going to be favourable to David or whether he was going to have to flee for his life Jonathan was acknowledging the fact he was attributing the eventual outcome of all these matters to being in accordance with the guiding hand and the will of Yahweh we have to think with great faith to think that way don't we? You know, at this point in David's life, there's something remarkably reminiscent of the life of Joseph. Because in Psalm 105 and at verse 17, 
it says that Yahweh sent a man before them, even Joseph. That is, before the nation was delivered out of the Canaanites and taken down into Egypt where they became a great nation. And the promise to Abraham was fulfilled. That is the promise that said that I will make of thee a great nation. They became a great nation, not in the land of Canaan, but in the land of Egypt. But that Psalm 105 and verse 17 says that. That God sent a man before them, even Joseph. Now in other words, Joseph, who is the most remarkable type of Christ, as we would all appreciate, Joseph was sent by God away from his house and away from his family into exile in Egypt so that through him Yahweh could prepare a great deliverance for his people. And now we find that God is doing exactly the same thing through David. Exactly the same thing. David was being sent away He would go away into exile. And like Joseph, he would undergo years and years of trial and tribulation, being disciplined according to the principles of the word. His faith being developed and polished and shined. So that eventually, Joseph was raised to great honour. And the people were delivered from their enemies in exactly the same way as they were to be in due course through David. And so in all of these things, the hand of Yahweh is at work. And here the types unfold, one by one. And so in verse 23 we read, And as touching the matter which thou and I have spoken of, behold, Yahweh be between thee and me forever. Do you notice there that Jonathan has used the name of Yahweh three times in three verses? Each of those verses, in verse 21, it ends with the words, as Yahweh liveth. Verse 22 says, For Yahweh hath sent thee away. Verse 23 says, Yahweh be between thee and me forever. See what that's telling us? That the name of Yahweh and the presence of Yahweh was never ever very far away from Jonathan. As was the same case with David. You see how they were of one mind and one thought, one disposition, It's really a very remarkable and a very, very wonderful thing that we should read that. When it says as touching the matter which thou and I have spoken of, the word rendered matter there is the Hebrew word dobar, D-A-B-A-R. And that is the common Hebrew word that is rendered as word. And uh, some of the uh, lexicons such as Gesenius tell us that it's virtually meaning the, uh, the uh, uh, Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word logos got a very similar meaning for example it occurs in Genesis 15 and verse 1 the word of Yahweh came unto Abram and it's a very common word it occurs hundreds and hundreds of times but it does have that meaning so you see Jonathan is referring to the word which thou and I have spoken so they were both men of the word And they were both men of their word. And you know, both of those things are essential, aren't they? It's not much good as being identified as men of the word if we are not men of our word. When we give it, and when we give an undertaking, and when we give a commitment, whether it be to God or man. You see how important that is to us? To see that characteristic in Jonathan, and of course in David, that it might be in ourselves as well. That we might be men and women of the Word, the Word of God, and that we might be men and women of our Word. And so he says, Yahweh be between thee and me forever. And it's almost as though Jonathan gets a slight feeling here, an uneasy feeling, a sad, tragic feeling that they might never meet again. In actual fact, they met only once after this, Very, very briefly, in one of the saddest meetings recorded in in Scripture, they were to meet only once. But he says here, May Yahweh be between thee and me forever. It's a beautiful expression. 
because it shows Jonathan's faith and confidence in Almighty God. It shows his appreciation of God's overriding power to bring them both eventually into the kingdom. Not just the kingdom of that age and that era, but the grand kingdom. When the promises made to Abraham would be fulfilled. When Messiah would come. When Shiloh would come. The Shiloh of Genesis 49. In whom they both had absolute confidence that Yahweh would fulfill his word. So for ourselves, like Jonathan, let us always be prepared to acknowledge the truth and the reality of these things. We should always be ready to be at one with those who are of sound mind in the truth. And this is what David and Jonathan are expressing in the renewing of their covenant, that they were truly at one. And I think that we should observe David as a type of Christ before he comes into his kingdom and Jonathan as a type of the disciples who will remain faithful to their king throughout every trial and adversity knowing assuredly that God will bring them through it all no matter how bad or how hard or how difficult it might be that God will bring them through it all unitedly and bring them into their their eternal inheritance and so Jonathan here puts his loyalty to David before self as we've seen so many times and in so doing he provides a warm and clear proof of his very deep and abiding love for David and that should be our attitude and our disposition toward the Lord Jesus Christ you see really what Jonathan is expressing in all these words here is that through faith he was able to recognise and acknowledge Zion's future king What he's saying here is, David, I know quite well that you are going to sit upon the throne of Israel and that you will unite the nation, as my father has never been able to do. That you will succeed him, whether he stays alive or whether he dies. You will be king. And so, not only is Jonathan able to look beyond to the kingdom of Messiah's reign, but he's able to look to the present dispensation. And he acknowledges David as Zion's future king. And in that sense, he's got to be a type of ourselves. Because we too look to the future, the near future, we pray, as we acknowledge Zion's future king. We're familiar with passages like Isaiah 2 and Psalm 72 and all the wonderful pictures that are painted in the word of truth concerning the coming of the Messiah, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom that he will establish. That's where our faith and our confidence lies as it did with Jonathan. And so Christ will be our friend, as David was Jonathan's. If we display toward him the same attitude and disposition that Jonathan exhibited toward David. And so it appears that to cement his friendship with David, Jonathan really had to resign himself from all his own personal ambitions and hopes. We've seen the evidence of that. What a magnificent type that is of faithful disciples to do what Jonathan had done, to resign ourselves from our own personal ambitions and hopes and any desire for greatness in this world or the things of this world. And Jonathan had made David's hope his hope. That's what we have to do. The greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to make Christ's hope our hope. And so we can forfeit all the things that don't matter. Once again, we might have a look while keeping a hand there to Matthew chapter 19, just ever so briefly, and see how these words apply. Is it not remarkable that we can look at men like Abraham, we can study the life of Joseph, we can look at men like David and Jonathan, and we find that the same disposition, the same outlook, the same basic attitude is seen in great characters right throughout the whole of Scripture. They're not different from the Old Testament to the New Testament or different epochs of, of, uh, of history. So in Matthew 19 and in verse 29, remember these words of the Lord Jesus Christ here. After Peter had asked him in verse 27, perhaps a little bluntly, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Peter, as spokesman for, all the, for, the, for the others, says to the Lord, Look, we've given up everything to follow you. And that was very true, they had. When you think that although these men still couldn't understand a lot of the things that the Lord was trying to teach them, and they were still to mature in the truth, 
But their hearts were there. They had faith in the things of God. They had a deep love for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his heavenly Father. They had a deep love for the truth and the things of the truth. But you see, Peter says to the Lord, he just can't resist this in the context of Matthew 19. He says, look, we've left everything to follow you. Now, ultimately, what are we going to get out of this? And it wasn't that he was being ambitious. It was rather that he wanted an explanation as to where they were all going to finish up. Verse 28, of course, applies specifically to them. But our interest tonight is in verse 29 in relation to Jonathan. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. That includes faithful Jonathan. And you see, only a true spiritual vision of the kingdom of God will cause individuals to reject the selfish and self-satisfying ways of the flesh that they might serve the cause of Christ. As Jonathan served the cause of David and the cause of Yahweh. Jonathan had surrendered all in regard to his loyalty to David as we must be prepared if need be to surrender all so far as our Lord Jesus Christ is concerned. And so back in this chapter in verse 24 we find that when the appropriate time came David hid himself in the field. When the new moon was to come and at our last class we saw how this was a religious feast with the new moon the king sat himself down it says in verse 24 the new moon came and the king sat down to his meal but no David so in verse 25 we learn that the king sat upon a seat as at other times even upon a seat by the wall and Jonathan arose and Abner sat by Saul's side and David's place was empty wouldn't that look ominous and wouldn't that be so notable at that time? It seems as though that place, the seat by the wall, was the place of honour in the court. And so the Jerusalem Bible renders it, he sat in his usual place, the place by the wall, with Jonathan seated facing him and Abner sitting next to Saul. But David's place was empty. Now in verse 26 it tells us that Saul didn't think anything about it at that time. He didn't think much of it. Saul thought, it says in verse 26, perhaps he is not clean. In other words, he may have been ceremoniously defiled. And since this was a form of a religious feast, however uh, Saul saw to um, uh, see to it, um, nevertheless, it, it was, it's a fact that, that this was the thought that came to Saul's mind. It never dawned on him that David might totally distrust him. never dawned on him. And this is a, a further sign of the instability of, of Saul's uh, mind, of his method of thinking. But in verse 27, it's somewhat different. It came to pass on the morrow, which was the second day of the month, that David's, David's place was empty. And Saul said unto Jonathan his son, Wherefore cometh not the son of Jesse to meet, neither yesterday nor today? Now Saul is starting to become disturbed. And we should make a special note of the fact that David in his question to, uh, rather Saul in his question to Jonathan says, Wherefore cometh not the son of Jesse? And you know, after David leaves, as back in that 19th chapter, after David is forced to flee from his own home, only once more after that does Saul ever refer to him as David. And that was the last time they ever met when Saul was in a tragic state. You may recall David called out to him across the valley and Saul, very, very feeble at that time, answered back across the valley and said, Art thou my son, David? That was the only other time. He referred to him only as the son of Jesse. He would not even utter his name and the term son of Jesse, it is very evident from the narrative, the way it occurs again and again, was a term of contempt 
so far as Saul was concerned. Jesse was a man of humble origins in contrast to the standing and the wealth and the position of Saul's family. It was used as a term of contempt. And so Jonathan answers in verse 28 and tells Saul what has happened to David. And in verse 29 he said to me, Let me go, I pray thee, for our family hath a sacrifice in the city, and my brother, he hath commanded me to be there. And now, if I have found favour in thine eyes, that is Jonathan's, let me get away, I pray thee, and see my brethren. Therefore he cometh not under the king's table. Now, in verse 30, the very next verse, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. But it's David who is missing. Jonathan is loyally there at his father's side. He hasn't left his father. He hasn't departed from his father. Saul's anger was kindled. And believe me, it was a considerable anger as he's shown in a few moments' time. This was exactly as David anticipated would happen. And you see, here is Saul using the occasion of a religious feast associated with a new moon to commit murder. That's what he had intended to do had David been there present. Imagine mixing religious worship with a committing of murder. Nice combination, isn't it? What a mockery he made of the truth. And so the Jerusalem Bible renders that Saul's anger flared up against Jonathan. There's no reason why that should have been so. Jonathan had given a perfectly convincing and valid reason as to why David was not there. So here's another example of Saul's outburst of utter irrationality. And this pattern in his life so that you never knew from one minute to the other whether he was going to smile at you and pat you on the back or dig a, a, a dagger under your fifth rib. You never knew where you were. And then he insults his son in a very incredible way. Saul's anger rose up against Jonathan, was kindled against him, and he said unto him, Thou son of the perverse, rebellious woman, do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion, and under the confusion of thy mother's nakedness? It's a dreadful thing to say. He not only insults his own son, he insults his own wife. And you know, among Eastern people, Perhaps more so than in the Western world, the greatest possible insult is to refer disparagingly or insultingly to a man's wife or his mother. And in this case, Paul managed, Saul managed to do both at once. Jonathan's mother and his wife, a dreadful state of affairs and showing that he has no control over what he's doing. And again this term son of Jesse comes in here. Do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion? The Jerusalem Bible renders it. Do I not know that you are in league with the son of Jesse? Of course Saul was certainly aware of the friendship between the two but he couldn't have any idea of the extent of that fellowship he couldn't have any idea of the extent of that oneness and unity of mind and the deep love that existed between the two. He couldn't have any idea of that. Saul suffered a persecution complex, which is part of this medical condition of melancholia, which we saw uh, very early on in the, in, the, in the studies. So he has a persecution complex. And yet Jonathan has shown no sign of disloyalty whatever to his father. No sign whatever. And yet he gets this outburst from, uh, from, uh, from Saul. And then in verse 31, he makes this statement, which is really very, very dynamic indeed. He says in verse 31 to Jonathan his son, For as long as the son of Jesse liveth upon the ground, thou shalt not be established, nor thy kingdom. Wherefore now send and fetch him unto me, for he shall surely die. You see, Saul is virtually telling Jonathan that he would have to make a choice. He would have to give up either his friendship with David 
or his hopes of inheriting the throne and the kingdom. What Saul didn't know was that Jonathan had already made that choice. You see, Saul's reasoning, like all the reasoning of the flesh, was wrong. And in this case, it was wrong on two counts. Firstly, if David was the one whom Yahweh had chosen, who was going to be the next one to inherit the kingdom, as Samuel told him in chapter 15 and verse 28, then Jonathan breaking his friendship with David wouldn't make the slightest difference. If Yahweh was going to put David on the throne in the place of Saul, who could do anything to stop that? Who could deter Yahweh from his purpose? And the second reason why Saul was so wrong was that if the friendship was as strong as Saul implied but didn't really know, then David would never do anything to harm Jonathan. Nor would Jonathan ever do anything to harm David. But Saul could not reason according to the spirit of the truth. But Jonathan's spiritual perception enabled him to see through the injustice and the stupidity of his father's reasoning. Look at verse 34, which we'll have to deal with a little later. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did eat no meat the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had done him shame. You see, for Jonathan, the question really came down to this. Which would he place first in his life? Material considerations and the advantages that could come through being the king of Israel? What a parallel there with Moses. As he looked upon the riches and the treasures of Egypt in Hebrews 11, what, verse 24, 25, 26, round about that area. What a remarkable parallel. This is the choice that Jonathan has had to make. Will he place material considerations with all the enticements and everything that are offered, will he place that first or will he place spiritual values and spiritual considerations first? And he's already made that decision. You see, Saul was the type of man who would say, whatever we do, we must grasp our material advantages first so that we've got them. And then think about religion after that. But the way of the truth is opposite to that. And that's why Jonathan's way was opposite to that of his father. So he finishes up by saying to Jonathan at this point, Wherefore, fetch him, for he shall surely die. And as we shall see, God willing, at our next class, at this point Jonathan is forced to challenge his father over this matter. He asks him outright, Why should he die? What has he done? And so there is again a division between father and son that should never have been there. There is no need for it. They were divided. They were supposed to be a father and son in the truth together. But they were divided because they had different philosophies. They thought differently. They had different values. They had different views. They had different understandings of fundamental issues of life. And that was a tragedy. The one thing we know is that Jonathan remained loyal to his father despite this confrontation here, never ever betrayed him. And yet he also maintained his loyalty to David. And so once again we're able to see what a wonderful character Jonathan was and what a very, very beautiful type of the faithful and loyal ecclesia in their service and commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ.